0: This is the Against Empire podcast, and I'm your host, Mark Maxmeister. This episode is about empire and trade. In the first episode of the series, I mentioned that all empires share three features. A big lie, an underclass, and a desire to expand and dominate others. Let's talk about the underclass, the labor force. Ancient empires relied on slave labor. Mercantilist ones in the late Middle Ages depended on exploitation and class division. Since the Industrial Revolution, two major kinds of economies have dominated the world, free markets and economies planned and controlled by the states. Most people would call these capitalist and communist, but both of these labels refer to an idealistic arrangement. In reality, the lines are blurred, unregulated capitalism gets bailed out in a planned way by the state and communism creates its own bourgeoisie elite class spawning black market economies that operate exactly like capitalism in both cases the presence of those features of empire i mentioned would tell you the most about whether the people that live under these rules thrive or suffer Empires have used these economic theories in crafting their big lie, their reason for dominating others. The limits of an economy make it easy to grant prosperity to some at the expense of the rest, and but nearly impossible to benefit everyone. Often that's part of the big lie. Believe this, invade there, oh, and everything will be better off for everyone. Except those we conquer, of course. So let's take a closer look at where it all started. Barter is the oldest economy. When you and I trade things of equal value, that's fair trade. When you are in a desperate situation and have to give me what I want at a far lower price than you would otherwise, that's exploitation. The economic history of the world is riddled with examples of fair-ish trade turning into exploitation. How do these circumstances change? You could have a famine or a plague. Raiders could invade. Wars could come between trade partners, leaving no other place to sell for a good price. But throughout history, kings and merchants, or empires and corporations now, have worked together to undermine the fairness of existing trade. This was called securing favorable trade agreements during the Cold War, or mercantilism under the colonial period. Let's not confuse this with free trade, which came later, and established agreements where the rules for trade were the same in every country within a region. Throughout the Cold War, America and Russia manipulated the economies of all other unallied countries caught in between, in the Third World, to buy loyalty and sow discord against the other side. Neither country aspired to create fair trade, and many dictators held on to power against the will of the people by playing one side against the other, leaving behind a trail of abuse and exploitation that benefited international companies extracting resources from these places. For example, the U.S. and U.K. supported South African apartheid for decades until the end of the Cold War made opposition less costly for them. Even the democratic West has mostly struggled for fairness and justice only when it aligned with their strategic self-interest. A justice-seeking democracy only exists when its leaders are prophetic or saintly in their moral discipline, as this clip from the Crash Course YouTube channel explains.
1: Probably the most famous democratic success story is South Africa, which jettisoned decades of apartheid in the 1990s and elected former dissident Nelson Mandela as its first black president in 1994. It also adopted one of the most progressive constitutions in the world, but it's worth remembering that democracy and economic success don't always go hand in hand as much as some Americans wish they would. The fact is, however, that democracy and political freedom, especially the freedom to participate in and influence the government, have been on the rise all over the world since the 1980s and especially since 1990.
0: Freedom has been on the rise since 1990, but people often ascribe the wrong reason to this. The Soviet Union's demise coincides with the general rise of political freedom in the decades since, but this was due to a political shift. Today roughly half the world's people live under socialism. Socialism did not end in 1990, and many socialist countries have grown at the same rate as capitalist ones. And so capitalism itself is not the reason for that growth in freedom around the world. Let's look at the numbers. 32 countries still define themselves as socialist in their constitutions. 80 more have been led by socialist political parties elected through free elections. This includes some of the U.S. closest allies, such as Germany and the UK. I am totally excluding from this tally the last five single-party dictatorships that claim to be carrying out the Marxist revolution—China, North Korea, Cuba, Vietnam, and Laos. These are not allied with socialist countries or socialist parties around the world, and they don't see the world through the same lens. So what did change? The Soviet bloc and the Cold War created three separate worlds that gave tyrants and corporations cover to do whatever they wished. Evil actors in the Third World played both sides against each other. After the Cold War, these tyrants were exposed, and many regimes fell. Sometimes it took decades, such as with the Arab Spring in 2010. Some dictators still remain. This global consensus of shared values made most countries more open and increased trade. After the Cold War, an era of free trade sprung out. Everyone was trying to grow the world faster by dropping trade barriers. This globalization did lift the poor out of poverty somewhat, but it also made the rich a whole lot richer. The gap between both ends grew a 100 times wider between 1970 and today.
1: That's the thing about history, it depends on where you're standing. From where I'm standing, globalization has been a net positive, but then again, it's been a pretty good run for heterosexual males of European descent. Critics of globalization point out that billions haven't benefited much, if at all, from all this economic prosperity, and that the polarization of wealth is growing, both within and across nations. There's nothing new about international trade, but its pace has also increased dramatically. In 1960, trade accounted for 24% of the world's GDP. Today, it's more than doubled that.
0: When this capitalist system accelerated, it also transformed its purpose.
1: It became all about the ways
0: that money could be made to do work rather than the work itself. Goods and services were shoved aside for a new form of, quote, economic activity, financial services, In the first half of the 20th century, economists didn't even count investors and market speculation as part of the GDP. It wasn't a living. It didn't produce anything. It wasn't actually new. These practices had been around for a long time. It had been considered sinful for most of human history, though. Lending money with interest was considered a sin under the Catholic Church. That practice of usury only became legal for Christians in Europe in 1545. Islam continues to outlaw usury to this day, and Islamic banks cannot lend money at interest, a practice they call riba, but they find workarounds. The financial empire must grow. The financial sector now makes up over a third of the economy, larger than manufacturing, larger than energy. Speculation on the market via futures, options, and derivatives, and other contracts of financial innovation involved 1.2 quadrillion dollars in recent years, 13 times the total GDP of the world. These capitalist mechanisms were supposed to enable the rest of the economy, but now they overshadow it and threaten to separate us from objective reality itself. Pay attention to crypto. But Karl Marx, the sociologist from the 19th century, was prescient in recognising the ways that capitalism distorts our values, our self-awareness, our self-identity, as this clip explains.
2: Mostly, Marx wrote about capitalism. It was, in his day, still getting going, and Marx was one of its most intelligent and perceptive critics. An important aspect of Marx's work is that he proposes that there's an insidious, subtle way in which the economic system colours the sort of ideas that we end up having. The economy generates what Marx termed an ideology. A capitalist society is one where most people, rich and poor, believe all sorts of things that are really just value judgments that relate back to the economic system. For example, that a person who doesn't work is worthless, that leisure beyond a few weeks a year is sinful, that more belongings will make us happier, and that worthwhile things and people will invariably make money. One of the biggest evils of capitalism is that capitalist ideas teach all of us to be anxious, competitive, conformist and politically complacent. Modern work is alienated. In order to be fulfilled at work, Marx wrote that workers need to see themselves in the objects they have created but this is increasingly rare in the modern world. Modern work leads to a feeling of disconnection between what you do all day and who you feel you really are and what you think you'd ideally be able to contribute to existence. Capitalism makes the human being utterly expendable. Capitalism is very unstable. Crises are endemic to capitalism and they're caused by something rather odd. The fact that we're able to produce too much far more than anyone needs to consume. Capitalist crises are crises of abundance rather than, as in the past, crises of shortage. We ought to see him as a guide whose diagnosis of capitalism's ills helps us to navigate towards a more promising future.
0: In all but one country where the policies are influenced by multiple political parties, capitalism is not at odds with socialism. One is about how private wealth is recycled into the economy to support more trade and prosperity. The other, about how public resources should be divvied up among the people. Only in the United States of America has ignorance about both concepts allowed a few in the political class to cement the myth that you can't provide everyone with enough without wrecking the market system that expands trade. This is not true. There is more than enough to provide food and shelter and comfort to all the world's people. The richest 1% of the world own 43% of everything, and a modest redistribution of that wealth would make the bottom half of the world many times richer, at no loss of comfort to those at the top. The socialist capitalist half of the world shows that these systems are not at odds. Marx was right about one thing, unchecked capitalism creates an ideology and eventually a cult religion forms around it that compels its followers to value the opposite of what most religions hold dear. Instead of let the man with two coats give to the person with one, they preach that people must earn their daily bread and shelter. Instead of greed being evil, handouts are evil. Instead of finding meaning through vocations, we amass wealth through salaries. In short, doing well and getting ahead is how they measure themselves, not doing good and making progress along the moral path to a better world. You should begin to understand why socialist ideas are so threatening to those whose whole sense of self is based on having more than most. Amazingly, these Greedanistas found a way to reconcile their interpretation of Christianity in the prosperity gospel. Most televangelist preachers preach this promising health and wealth to believers if they, quote, invest a seed of their money as a sign of their true faith in donations to the ministry itself. They demand their followers have the right beliefs and obedience to their God, but don't ask them to help the poor or serve and sacrifice for others. They are the modern equivalent of Pharisees. Most of the religious voices you'll hear on this podcast preach the opposite of the prosperity gospel. They talk about using wealth and health as a blessing and a resource that we can spend to improve life for others. It is the fuel we need to actively love those who hate us and work against the good. Ironically, these greed-driven capitalists end up looking just like Putin and his Russian oligarchs. They both worship wealth and status. They both embrace authoritarianism to protect their privilege and power and both are threatened by religiously grounded people who strive and sacrifice for justice because it is right. They are baffling to the greedy because they cannot be bought. A good way to illustrate the doublespeak that an empire can have around trade and justice is to break down the 1986 speech where Ronald Reagan was opposed to apartheid, but also opposed to sanctions, even though the vote in the Senate was 85 to 10 in favor of crushing sanctions on South Africa to stop the injustice against the native peoples of that continent.
3: America's view of apartheid has been and remains clear. Apartheid is morally wrong and politically unacceptable. Many in Congress and some in Europe are clamoring for sweeping sanctions against South Africa. The Prime Minister of Great Britain has denounced punitive sanctions as immoral and utterly repugnant. We do not believe the way to help the people of South Africa is to cripple the economy upon which they and their families depend for survival. Shut down these productive mines with sanctions and you have forced black mine workers into destitution.
0: And history has shown that Reagan was wrong sanctions against apartheid in South Africa did work. And within four years, they took down that government largely without the cooperation of the United States and the United Kingdom and their corporations. I don't believe the American
3: people want to do something like
0: that. Southern Africa is like a zebra.
3: If the white parts are injured, the black parts will die too.
0: Now, this part is interesting. Ronald Reagan implies that that you can't punish a country's leaders without punishing the people of that country. But Reagan never bothered to ask the black South Africans what they would want. And if he had, they would overwhelmingly have supported sanctions against their corrupt and oppressive government.
3: Racial progress comes swiftest and easiest, not during economic depression, but in times of prosperity
0: and growth. This one is false and reflects Ronald Reagan's failed philosophy of trickle-down economics. History has shown us that an economic crisis will cause repressive regimes to squeeze the labor underclass even harder, and in times of abundance, those in power might still not give an inch to workers. Take the most extreme example. After the plague in the Middle Ages wiped out one-third to one-half of Europe's population, land was abundant. Most farmland lay fallow, There was more than enough for every person to farm all that he could possibly manage. And even then, the Lords of England treated the few remaining surviving workers like forced labor. In 1351, they passed a repressive maximum wage law, a statute of laborers, making it a crime to hire anyone for more than what a worker had earned before the plague. Workers would have to struggle for another 600 years before we would see something like a minimum wage No, Reagan's rhetoric is just a fiction.
3: Our own history teaches us that capitalism is the natural enemy of such feudal institutions as apartheid.
0: This entire podcast series against empire is meant to illustrate why this is wrong. Capitalism, when it is part of an empire, needs an underclass and an apartheid system in order to make it work.
3: In recent years, there's been a dramatic change. Black workers have been permitted to unionize, bargain collectively, and build the strongest free trade union movement in all of Africa. The infamous pass laws have been ended, as have many of the laws denying blacks the right to live, work, and own property in South Africa's cities. Citizenship, longly stripped away, has been restored to nearly six million blacks. Segregation in universities and public facilities is being set aside. Social apartheid laws prohibiting interracial sex and marriage have been struck down.
0: What he just said doesn't align with what he was saying at press conferences around this time, as you can hear reporters grilling him in this clip. Do you really
1: believe that all segregation has been eliminated in South Africa, Mr. President? You said that in your radio interview.
3: No, and I didn't intend to say that. I'm sorry that I carelessly gave the impression that I believe it had been totally eliminated. There are areas where it hasn't.
1: What do you believe is the case in South Africa?
3: You will hear about all of this as soon as we finish these consultations. so
1: misinformed about the state of uh, the
0: situation in South Africa in terms of whites and blacks.
3: Helen, I will answer that one question and then I'm going to walk out of here and Beryl's going to take over. I was n- not nearly as ill informed as many of you have made it out that I was. But I was talking about improvements that actually do exist there and have been made. But as I say, I I know that uh, segregation has not been eliminated totally and in some areas uh, there's been no improvement, but there has been a great improvement over what has ever existed before.
0: There's no vote there, no participation. No, no, no.
3: I was talking about the specific things of segregation, uh, labor and the new things that have taken place with regard to labor and things of that kind. South Africa is an African country as well as a Western country. Historian Johnson does not see South Africa as a failure. South Africa is the only African country to produce a large black middle class.
0: Note the obvious racism in this framing, as if it makes it okay for white people to go and take over a country of Africans and therefore it becomes a Western nation. Also, this statement is just wrong. There were black middle classes in all African countries because other than South Africa, they were all black people and they all had a middle class of some size. Also, in every one of these comments, note how his frame of what justice means has everything to do with a person's economic rights and not their political rights. In the next clip, he will frame this in terms of Cold War politics that if the other side is for something, then it must be wrong because our side is right.
3: The Soviet Union is not unaware of the stakes. A decade ago, using an army of Cuban mercenaries, Moscow installed a client regime in Angola. Today, the Soviet Union is providing that regime with the weapons to attack United, a black liberation movement which seeks for Angolans the same right to be represented in their government that black South Africans seek for themselves. Also, the Soviet armed guerrillas of the African National Congress, operating both within South Africa and from some neighboring countries, have embarked upon new acts of terrorism inside South Africa.
0: History remembers the African National Congress as the one that brought liberation to the people in a largely nonviolent means. But because Reagan was against the Soviet empire, he overlooks that they had a righteous cause because they also had support from Soviets. To
3: the black, colored, and Asian peoples of South Africa, you have a friend and ally in the United States. Maintain your hopes for peace and reconciliation, and we will do our part to keep that road open. Both the government and its opponents should begin a dialogue about constructing a political system that rests upon the consent of the governed.
0: I strongly support a dialogue movement, but dialogue only works when there's real pressure on the party in power to make a compromise.
3: And therefore, I urge the Congress and the countries of Western Europe to resist this emotional clamor for punitive sanctions. If Congress imposes sanctions, it would destroy America's flexibility, discard our diplomatic leverage, and deepen the crisis. What foreign power would fill the vacuum if its ties with the West are broken.
0: History has shown that in this case, strong isolation produced a complete turnaround in the ideology of that regime and led to a multi-party democracy that has been healthy and denuclearized ever since.
3: We and our allies cannot dictate to the government of a sovereign nation, nor should we try. We can volunteer to stand by and help bring about dialogue.
0: Most of the history of the Cold War was exactly what he's talking about here. The United States did dictate terms to many of the countries that were unaligned in the Third World. A united front against Russia is dictating terms that are going to minimize the damage and bloodshed and loss of life that happened because of its illegal invasion of the Ukraine in 2022. One of the things this podcast looks for are concepts in our age that we consider acceptable but would horrify future generations. The one that keeps coming up for me is the concept of a just war, or even that there's such a thing as a war crime. War is a crime. We've blinded ourselves to this obvious truth because we think that war is necessary in order for mutual protection against tyranny. But in the 21st century, in an interconnected age, there are so many tools that are nonviolent forms of resistance that war will sometime in the future be considered a crime. This has been all about empire and trade. In the next episode, we're gonna look at how empire has reshaped the identity of those they rule over for their own gain. Until next time.